Freefort in Boise, Idaho is fast becoming my favorite festival of the year. Last week, the whole KRS office drove out there and saw great bands, met great people, drank great beer, and recorded this panel. Data, what is it good for? While we were at it. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, MerchTable partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's show, we talk about data, how people are using it to help bands, and what the downsides might be. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. We're talking to Erica Sinkovic, Z Coward, Susie Gen, and Kevin Erickson. All right, guys. So, well, our topic today is data. What is it good for? And of course, there is quite a lot of talk these days about data. I'm just fascinated with data in general because it's kind of like, well, you have to ask yourself, what is data? Data is every single thing in the whole world. So, how do we decide what data is relevant, right? And, you know, it's kind of done for us in a lot of ways, like Spotify Artist Insights. They give us the gender, age, location, location of people. But it's like, who really needs that information? Why is that important? Erica. Maybe a touring artist. (laughs) That's what we hear a lot from the CD Baby clients, at least, is when they're trying to put together tours, trying to figure out where their big markets are going to be. And a lot of the data will support that, particularly for international. People think that they're going to make the big hop over the pond. A lot of times the trending data will tell them if it will be worthwhile or not. Susie, do you want to speak to that as a booking agent? Yeah, I mean, I think that Definitely seeing the numbers, seeing the location, seeing the demographics of ages is really helpful. As an agent, just really looking at different rooms, even locations, if you think of even the Bay Area, there's East Bay, there's Northern SF, like you would definitely target differently, knowing some of those demographics. What other stuff, Zeke, like as a manager, what kind of data do you actually use day to day? Yeah, on on our side, we bring together like fan insights, bands in town, as well as Songkick. So you have people are actually actively tracking to see you live. And then you have your, your listeners on Spotify that might maybe 30 or 40% are probably going to come see you live. And we'll take an average of that and come up with like top 50 cities. That really helps us avoid cities where we'd lose money. So if you don't have like 100 listeners in a city, you probably shouldn't go there unless there's a really good like local scene that, that is all word of mouth or something like that. You know? So you got to be really careful when you're in development of where you're going to lose your money. And it can help you with that now. Do Spotify listens truly translate to people getting their butts in the door at a venue? Like I've always wondered that. Like you might have a huge number of Spotify fans in a given market, but are those people going to come out? I think at least booking tours and such, like I feel like a lot of it is education for everyone right now. Like a lot of us are learning what that information can do. I feel like that conversation is definitely becoming more and more part of my pitches to festivals which I think is really important to think about how competitive that level is. So sometimes those numbers have been really helpful in in terms of like kind of talking about the artists, like where they come from, 
where they're growing, what they want to do with their music, the scenes they're part of, all of those things are part of their like profile. You know, I think that's really interesting because it's it indicates a shift in the way that we're talking about data now versus how we were talking about data like five years ago. I think five years ago the conversation about data was centered around what it was going to do for artists themselves. Like you're going to get this data and it's going to give you the, these direct tools to advance your career. And now there's this sort of pivot toward you're going to have this access to data and that's going to open a different set of doors to you because you can take it to potential partners. The data is how you get booked on the late night talk shows. The data is how you get the festival gigs. I think that's kind of instructive in that there's ways that the direct benefits of data might not have been everything that we thought that they were going to be five years ago. It's been of, of recent that we've seen more numbers, more managers sharing that information. A lot of the artists probably use, utilize that information to get teammates, yet they don't pass that information forward towards their teammates, which I think is really interesting. I think just recently have we been seeing more of those things coming to us in reports or even in the discussion or hey, we're debating this venue, like which one should we be leaning towards? Like that stuff finally is hitting. And I also think it's important to look at the types of listens you're getting. So like if you're on a playlist, which there's a lot of talk like playlist is like the best thing you can get, but you really, I think we, we subtract the playlist listens because it inflates your numbers. Like those are passive listens and depending even the type, if it's a holiday playlist, like you can see which people, like how many people are saving your song. So like a holiday playlist actually get like very few saves versus being on like the new indie mix. And really it's like subtract that number entirely and that's your real number is like the people going to your profile or your saved music. And that might not be as cool of a number, but that's more like reality of what you could tour against or things like that, which is how you can make money. <laughs> so to Zeke's point, I was going to bring up the play sources. If it's coming from direct listens or coming from playlists or somebody else's playlist, where the plays are coming from will tell you how many listeners you are. But I think it connects to what Kevin was saying as well and how granular the data is today. And it used to not be that way when we're talking about record store sales and you're saying, oh, well, I can sell this many records. Okay, but what other information do you have about the people that are actually buying that record? And you have access to so much more data, more granular data, more personal data than ever before. And I think that makes a big difference. I mean, one of the questions though, that sort of, I mean, I want to get into this more with Kevin. I don't know if we want to do it right at this exact second, but let's talk about, you know, it's like if you can get more granular data on the people who are buying or listening, let's say streaming, does that help you identify people that you would call super fans? You know what I mean? Because I feel like I've said a lot on this show that some of us are in the business of super serving the super fan. Like that's kind of the new indie niche is like, okay, well, we're not going to sell a million copies of this, but we are going to sell the hell out of, you know, this one record by making it super deluxe and offering all these bells and whistles that, you know, 500 people are going to go crazy for. So does it kind of help this type of data? Does that kind of help in like identifying super fans? I think not so. Yet, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least not for, I think, Spotify has that data. I know they do programs against super fans, like inviting them out to concerts and doing special events where they know the people that listen to some artists a hundred times a day, but that doesn't siphon down to the artists. At least it's all anonymous of who those people are and how to reach them. So like the only way we have to reach people is on Facebook and Instagram boost posts and stuff like that. How do you guys feel about the fact that that data is anonymous and that you guys don't get to see who those people are? 
as a listener or <laughs> yeah, it's a well, challenge. as a person whose a job challenge. it is to be yeah. marketing to these people. It's a challenge. Just even like you know? the, even concert promoters like Live Nation doesn't even have the, the data on their user or not, not Live Nation does, the artists. If you play a concert, you don't have the email addresses. You can't follow up after that concert. Right. So not to speak to the um, Live Nation part of it, but for CD Baby's retail store, one thing that you can do as a customer is decide if your email address and name are going to be shared with the artist that you purchased the album from. And then the artist has access to those email addresses if you've chosen to provide that and they can hit you up directly or whatnot. So if Apple or Spotify or whomever, ha you know, Amazon has credit card information on file, you know that they know, but for privacy purposes, we're not getting that granular quite yet. I think that's really a term that's been missing from the conversation around data is consent. And I think that both consent on the artist side and consent on the fan and listener side. And, and I don't want to trivialize the larger discussion that we're having industry-wide about consent by putting it in this context, but I think it is important to talk, like, a healthy music industry is characterized by consent of all of the participating parties and all of the transactions that are happening, and it's difficult to have meaningful consent when there's these incredible power asymmetries. Like, we're not going to get Spotify to allow listeners to have their artists, to allow listeners to let the artists that they're listening to have access to their email addresses directly because it's not in Spotify's interest to do so. They want to be the portal through which artists reach fans. They want to control that access point. It's not in their interest. If that's going to change, it's only going to change because of collective pressure. I do think it's interesting, though, that Spotify has come in now and, and help pre-release and announce tours which I think kind of speaks at least to the same fans, right, that we're talking about, at least the folks that are, like, listening to that artist want to know about tour dates. And I, I've been told that, we, that we're not paying for those services, which I think is even better, even though I've heard some fans go, oh, is your artist paying for, you know, this to, like, throw this in my face or whatnot? And it's like, well, no, this is like a collaborative relationship in that way for the touring element to actually benefit from some of those streaming Right, and controlling components. how many of those messages go out because if all the bands started sending messages, it would yeah. be a spam machine potentially. <laughs> if you are able to see the URI, the playlist URI, those playlists are connected to a user that created that playlist. So you, you can track down your super fan depending on how granular the data you're receiving actually is. And I think that that's actually a big difference. You see that on YouTube as well, where you actually see an individual user, but on Apple Music, you don't see that quite yet. I don't know, I mean, you can connect, you can choose to connect, right? And see you, what your friends are listening to, they can see what you're listening to, but you don't have to. You can also choose to remain anonymous. So, you know, there is some consent there. A little bit, a little yeah. bit mixed in. And that's a great feature too, uh, seeing what playlist you're on. So like. For us, Mimicking Birds is added to Snow Patrol's playlist, Gary, who we don't know yet, but <laughs> but you would never you never know that another artist is actually listening to or a fan of the band. And so we've we've had a few things like that that have popped up that in the past you would just never know. And there's a collaboration in the works. Is that Hopefully. a duet or something? <laughs> just, just bringing it to the touring, el yeah. touring element. It's like interesting to me because sometimes like those super fans translate to you know hard tickets and like when I'm looking at openers for packages or I'm looking at 
how to package up the bands properly and looking at communities. Like a lot of that is accessed through that platform for me where I'm just going directly there. I'm looking at the number, but I, I haven't had agents say, Hey, they have this many direct listens or like, you know, we're not using that yet in our, you know, vocabulary and our language to each other to help each other understand those bands more effectively yet. But I would do that more where it's like, I would call those quote unquote sticky fans, fans that will come see these bands no matter where they play, no matter where, what city, you know, there's just a hard ticket element to it. And they're the ones that are probably looking and like going directly to those fans pages, listening to those songs. And I think it would be a good thing to kind of share with each other more. Was without applause by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Erica Sinkovic, Z Coward, Susie Gen, and Kevin Erickson. What kind of tools does CD Baby have that you find are really popular with artists and managers and other people who are trying to I mean, nothing, do business. nothing beats hard sales data. 
you know, hands down, but the time frame between that individual sale and the actual reporting of it can be months and months and months. Or if we're talking about publisher data, it's a year. I don't, you know, it can be a long time between that. So having access to the trending data via APIs for Spotify, Apple, whoever's offering it to us to be able to expose that data. But we have to be very clear with people that these are not verified sales, right? So there can be some things going on um, where some of those sales get subtracted by the time they actually wind up in your bank account. So trending reports are super popular right now, and it's very similar to what's being displayed in Spotify for artists and soon to come for Apple for artists or whatever they're going to end up branding it as. So yeah, I, I mean, I think that's the more real time is what people are looking for, even if it's on their own embeddable music player on their own website, just even being able to access things that they've set up themselves. You know, you guys probably use like Google Analytics or something as well, but we try to make that stuff really easy for artists so that, you know, you don't have to be a tech quiz to know real time. What kind of stuff do you see people asking for? Like what, you think it's the real time data that people are, are interested in? When we first launched the trending reports for our clients, it was just quantity, what is it, age demographics, whatever kind of the bare minimum that was being offered. And we got more requests for the play source, device type, gender splits, unique versus repeat, you know, listeners. And I think trying to figure out who those hardcore fans are. But I do think that the play source, specifically, if you can identify the playlist that's bringing you a ton of streams, that's really powerful. And if if you've paid for a PR service or you're you know, paying a distribution company to promote you or whatever your relationship is in the music industry. And sometimes it's, I don't want to say dumb luck, but you know, sometimes someone at those services just really likes what you're doing and you get really lucky and without anybody asking, they're putting it on a playlist and suddenly you have 40,000 streams that you're like, is this fake? Did some, is this <laughs> computer generated? What just happened? And the power of editorial, it's up there, you know? If you make playlists at Spotify, you're probably one of the most popular kids in school right now. <laughs> well, I think we should sort of shift a little bit to ownership of all of this information that everyone's using and using it to figure out how to run their businesses because so much of it is owned by big corporations that we face a real problem should any of those corporations just disappear. Like if we woke up in the morning and Spotify was gone or after April 2nd or whenever it is that their IPO is going to happen, you know, what would we do as an industry? And that would be an interesting moment for us. So I know Kevin has thoughts on this. Oh, I have so many thoughts on this. I mean, I think that there's a couple dynamics that are, that are worth thinking about. Facebook is in the news this week. And in that context, I was thinking back to when they went through their IPO in 2012 and then suddenly the change in the incentives as a result of the IPO accelerated what was already happening with Facebook, which is that they, they had given artists a set of tools to connect to their fans and gradually over time the value proposition changed, the amount of connectivity that they allowed to fans changed suddenly features like the ability to, after the show, everybody who used to be the case that on Facebook after the show, you could send a message to everybody who had RSVP'd to the show to say, thanks for coming. Here's a merchandise link if you're interested in that. Now, something like that would be completely unthinkable on Facebook. More and more, there's a level of payment that's expected to be able to connect to the fans. And when a company is building this great data surveillance operation, 
particularly in a context where the data itself is the product, where there's this the user, uh, free to the users, so the data itself is the service that it's providing. It creates this incentive where part of the way that the business becomes sustainable is that the service stands between artists and their fans, where in the, at the initial value proposition as it was pitched out to us, they went around to all the music industry conferences and told us how great it was gonna be, it was that they were gonna connect us to the audiences. And so I certainly worry about that in the context of the digital music platform. Certainly the incentives look a little different when you've got a subscription service set up, but I worry about tools being made available now as a way to encourage adoption of the platform and then over time, those tools being taken away or monetized or charged for, and then they become less and less available to the full range of, of artists, the full diversity of artists, and, and locked down. I'm scared about that, for sure. I think that's legit. Yeah, absolutely. If, if a band with like a thousand fans has to pay the same CPM as Coca-Cola, that's definitely a bummer. <laughs> I mean, I think we've all watched that happen on Facebook, you know, you're initially able to talk to all of your fans and you can follow everyone and this, that, and the other, and it's all great and wonderful. And then suddenly you have to pay to have your post seen by yeah. the people that have chosen to follow you. And that's why you gotta get really smart when you're when you are boosting a post, like down to the age, 25 miles around the city you're playing. And it can be extremely effective. We've seen where like some fan will find and invite a bunch of friends and that's like 10 bucks. So if you use it smartly, it can be really effective still. I think that's a big thing too. I think that's going to be the same on Instagram. The moment Facebook bought Instagram, I don't know if you guys all noticed your news feed changed a little bit. It's because they put in the Facebook algorithm. So let's talk a little bit about the importance of artists maintaining an email list and having their own newsletter, because that is one place where artists can truly own their own data and market in their own way to their fans without having to pay anyone extra anything. Yeah, totally. So there's a service, a startup that we just started using called setthesetcom It's a platform that pulls your bands in town tour dates and you can send out a, you can post it on Facebook and basically fans can choose which songs they want to hear at your show. And then you, on the back end, you get to see like a, a roll up of like your most popular songs and down to even e each show. They enter an email address, so you collect their email and then they get a playlist of that as well. And so they've also done like some nonprofit components with like Muse and they're about two years old, but it's kind of a cool way with them. Cause you can, you can, it's one, one method to start capturing that data off of Facebook, Instagram and other places. And then it, they just give you a, a spreadsheet. So you, you got to put it in your own database and manage it properly like MailChimp or something. But do people actually read terms and conditions or privacy policies, which are totally different no. documents? Anybody, anybody? Okay. Oh, we got one. We got one oh, in the audience for people listening in on the podcast. Well, the, the yeah. challenge is, is like it really doesn't matter what's in those terms and conditions when a company monopolizes the marketplace. Like either, you know, Facebook can put any kind of crazy stuff in there at this point and it's not going to stop people from using Facebook because there really isn't any competition. They're monopolizing that marketplace. You know, at that point, the only real remedy that we have is some kind of a policy intervention to create some privacy guidelines, to create some data ownership guidelines, because on the consumer side, we really just don't have any recourse. Do you feel like there's anyone protecting us? I think that at this particular political moment, there's a greater interest in this than we've ever seen in the past. 
one of the things that's really scary about Facebook too is like there's just no opt out on the artist side. And so with some of the revelations about Cambridge Analytica, we've seen that they were actually gathering the kind of granular data that would allow them to associate your liking of a particular band page with potential personality traits. Like, are you more anxious or neurotic or prone to distrust authority and then be able to serve you targeted ads based on what they know about your personality from the music that you listen to. That's super scary. What does Carcass say about me? That you have good taste. I think there's this thing that when a, a source of data, when a new metric becomes available, it can transform a marketplace by becoming the thing that everybody chases after. And it might not actually correlate to like real career advancement or real, or real progress or real sustainability. I'm thinking of like when Gawker famously put up a big board in their office that displayed what the articles on their site that were getting the most page views, it incentivized everybody to chase after page views and created an ecosystem that was creating more articles that were designed to achieve the highest amount of page views. And similarly, I think that like when YouTube, I think was YouTube the first service to display the plays all the time on everything that's on the site? I think that they might have been ahead of the curve with that. And now Spotify ranks everything by play count. When you put that play count number on everything, when you give people feedback about like monthly active listeners, artists assume that like having the most monthly active listeners is like the right metric for how they're doing in their career. And that might not be the case. So I think it I think one thing for artists to think about is don't fall into the trap of allowing this data feedback to be the measurement of your self-worth as an artist as, as how you're doing in your career. It doesn't necessarily correlate to progress or revenue. I know as, as a listener myself, some of the artists whose records were most meaningful to me in 2017, I've listened to twice. That doesn't reflect how much I spent on them. That doesn't reflect how my fandom. And so like, there's a, there's a gap between what actually translates to sustainability and, and the data that these services are incentivizing. Like when Spotify simultaneously like puts out a bunch of material encouraging artists, here's if, are you disappointed with your monthly listeners? here's a bunch of strategies to improve the numbers you're getting on your monthly listeners. Those are strategies that benefit Spotify. They're not necessarily strategies that benefit those individual artists. Sometimes they do, but it depends on, on the individual band or artist's career path. That's a good point. It's like, I think Fish has like 300,000 monthly listeners and they sold out 13 nights at Madison Square Garden. So <laughs> there's audiences that exist outside of. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask Susie in particular as a booking agent is because I feel like, you know, we, we're all just like products of the enlightenment in this country. And so we're just like every minute it has to be getting bigger. You know, it's like from small to big and that's the only trajectory, right? Like there is nothing else, but it's like over the span of an artist's career, I feel like some of the only truly hard data we have is who shows up at shows, right? Ticket sales. So that's not necessarily going to be just like a, you know, today it was two people and 10 years from now it's 2 million people. Like most, most definitely. Most definitely. And I think like working with artists at different parts of their careers, like having Haley Hendricks right now, who I just picked up a month and a half ago versus like an Ani DeFranco on my roster right now and her longevity and, and the level of records that she's put out and seeing her Spotify numbers next to a Haley's just because that's the information I'm looking at. It's really interesting. 
But then even if you go to another platform and you look at a Facebook, those numbers are completely opposite, you know? And I'm, and so I think it does just tell a little bit more about the story of the artist and what's going on with them and where they're at. Hopefully if you're digging in further and looking past just numbers, you'll be, you'll be able to pull out trends that you're looking at. But I find it to be interesting. I think like the streaming platforms and stuff like that have been really helpful for some of the artists that have dedicated decades of their lives towards their career in terms of just reinvesting in those records and continuing to like keep them out there for their fans. Those have been really beneficial for touring. Thinking about Ani DeFranco, like that's a nice example of, you know, if you are going to think, you know, if you're a young artist and you're thinking, how can I make this be my career in a sustainable way so that I don't have to be a barista or whoever or whatever else? I think they're Lyft drivers now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Part-time barista slash Lyft driver. What does that look like? I mean, that's the kind of person that you could look at and you could say, well, she knows she can do X cap in X market right? You know, 25 shows, you know, every six months, if that, or maybe not, you know, I mean, I recently interviewed the ladies of the Pearl Jam crew and they were talking about how Pearl Jam barely has to tour. They do tour like half of the year, but they actually don't have to tour that much because they can pull such large crowds in such specific markets. Like every now and then they'll go to, you know, every five years they'll go to Israel and like everyone in Israel will go see them or whatever. I just completely made that up, by the way. Just <laughs> I don't know if they go to but Israel. Yeah. I don't know if they have a fan base in Israel, but whatever. But you know what I mean? It's like, and then they can plan their careers based on these tours, which I think is like a nice sustainable way to do it rather than get our heads crazy with the notion of like, do how many Spotify plays do I have? And what does that mean about me as an artist? I think too, I don't know if it's the, can't, you know, also with that, with that project with Ani, you know, you, you sit there, you're working with this artist. She's sold out the Fillmore nearly 25 years in a row now, you know, at least once a year. And the numbers and the way they communicate are just different versus the way I need to develop a new artist and kind of how we're hitting the streets right out of the gate or what, what we're doing with press and things like that. But I, I, going back to just like old data maybe or like old school data, like we still believe in, you know, email lists. Like we're like, get out there and put your email list out there. Like collect everything we can to build our scene, our community, our family of audience, you know. So numbers and things like that, like ultimately talking to promoters, like that's what they're looking at in terms of, they want to see draw. They want to see like what's going on currently. And that might be the nuances more that speak to Spotify and all those other numbers. But, you know, I think it kind of still comes hand in hand. Needing both are really important in the discussion.
That was Excuse Generator by Lithix. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, MerchTable stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With MerchTable's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves MerchTable. See what they can do for your business at MerchTable.com. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to Erica Sinkovic, Z Coward, Susie Gen, and Kevin Erickson. What do you guys think about, I mean, somebody asked me the other day if they should put out a single or put out an album. And I was like, that's like saying, should I be Swedish or an alligator? I'm like, <laughs> I was just like, those two things are completely different things. You know what I mean? I'm like, those are not the same world of thing. Let's say you put out a single. Let's just, woo, you put out a single and everybody loves it, right? You get a gazillion plays on Spotify. What does that translate into for your career? Like, can you maybe get booked somewhere that you wouldn't have gotten booked before? Maybe, right? But like, what's next after that? Do you know what I mean? In terms of a sustainable career and in longevity? Because anyone, almost anyone, I will go on record and say this, almost anyone can write one song that a whole bunch of people like. Challenge accepted. You go, girl. <laughs> next Thursday, I want to buy next Thursday. But you know what I mean? Can they write too? Like, will anyone ever have that second you know, huge, hot single or whatever. And really, what does that mean? Like, are those people going to be like, oh, wow, I love that one song. I'm sure going to definitely go spend $25 on a ticket and $40 on a t-shirt. I don't know. Right. And so you get 200,000 plays on the new Music Friday playlist and then you disappear. Exactly. I mean, that's the concern, right? I'm sorry? Is that the new one hit wonder? Right. Because, I mean, radio is totally different. We haven't hit on radio. Radio is the original format of no data right? Thanks for nothing, right? <laughs> Thanks radio for absolutely nothing. Because radio never gave anyone any data on anything because they can't. You know, when you talk to radio stations, they're like, they're, you're like, who's your listenership? And they're like, oh, we can't tell you that. Anyway, yes, radio, no data. No but data. a one hit wonder. I mean, people always used to say back in the day, a million years ago, when I was just starting out that people, people would say that if you had a song in heavy rotation in a market, you could sell 100,000 copies of a record in that market. So, I mean, there wasn't data, but there, was, there were sales. And that's the thing that I think is missing. It's like our, a million Spotify plays, does that even translate into one sale? Yeah, and a lot of those discussions, talking to promoters and we're all educating each other, it's like we start talking about, okay, well, here's a threshold. Here's a band you've never heard of. This is the first time they're ever playing this market. Like, this is what they can do on Spotify. Like, still, I would say we're all still guessing, like, what does that mean? At least it means there's a level of relevancy that might be happening, or if I can have the, the data from a manager and, like, provide that type of information, which I think is helpful. But, like, most of the time, it's like, oh, they supported these two tours prior, and we just got this, like, daytime slot at this festival, and I think we're ready to, you know, nail the, you know, nail into the ground. So it's really hard. Like, it's... I think that still speaks a lot more to a promoter on how you build an artist today, but hopefully that, you know, the communication and the language is changing quite a bit when we see all the numbers and we want to use information the best way we can. Yeah. I think, and I think like the cadence of release is important and singles play an important part there. Like fans will dig into a whole album, but if you don't put something out for three years and you put another album out, they're going to forget about you. So it's like getting those singles out. If it's like a holiday single or a collaborative song, I think that's big. Like Coldplay and Chainsmokers collaboration song is like the most streamed Coldplay song. And that's like 
totally out of one of their album cycles. So a band on that level, you know, so, and I think, and Spotify triggers all those like new music is out, you know, when you put something out. So like every time you do that. So if you're doing that every three months, six months, if you're touring your butt off, I mean, people are not going to forget about you. And I think mm-hmm. that's the, the whole hitting the road thing has been one thing that I've encouraged any artists that I've worked with just from the standpoint of a distribution company or, or working at a record label, encouraging people to get out there and actually connect with their fans, unless you're one of those few that really connects more digitally than in the physical realm, IRL, you know, but I think for myself as a listener, I'd rather see the energy that's in the room of other fans and of the band. So I will, I will stay in the old school realm of going to a show. Yeah, and, no, and labels don't want to work with bands that aren't touring. Absolutely right not. It says yeah. so on our website. No it's like, don't even email me if you're not touring. Yeah. I have truth. a very harsh, it says I the harsh that. truth right on the yeah. website. No, I love that. I like to be harsh up front so that they're not surprised later on. Yeah, they know, they know what's happening. Well, does a hit single on one streaming service equal a sale? I don't think we ever answered Portia's question. I, well, I think it's RAA, tough. The, <laughs> it's considered a... I can't remember what the RAA thing is with that. It's is like it how a thousand many streams sh- equals one sale? One album sale. Because you, you can... 1,500? Was it 1,500? 1500? Yeah, I think it's... Once like Upon a Time Out. Yeah, so you can go That's gold. like a real equation out there, like an algorithm. Yeah, that. for the RAA. That's how really? they... If you, yeah, like you can actually stats. have a gold record now. That's really interesting. On streaming, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. About- I just, I feel like, you know, I have this artist, Gregory Allen Isakoff, and I think Gregory has success with Pandora at a time where Pandora was really hitting. You know, we were getting a lot popped up. Like, he would pop up on a lot of different lists, and I have to say, like, maybe we didn't even understand that information at that moment, like, when he started going from 33 paid to, like, 500 paid. And markets, and then we started rolling into like bigger thousand plus cap rooms. And at that moment, that like it, again, I think it was just luck and timing and the right mo. You know, we had somebody that was championing us at Pandora, and we were showing up on the Brandy Carlisleus, and we were showing up on all these different type of artists, and it was helping the touring. Like I could feel the impact. He had big black car on and Californication at that moment. And again, I think that's maybe a one song moment where that one song was meaning a lot to him, but he got a lot of other deals and people coming in and wanting to be part of that one song. And so can I book a whole tour on that? I think maybe once, but if it doesn't deliver past that, probably not twice, maybe not three times, you know, maybe I could get one more in there. The power of editorial. <laughs> You're right just like here. fighting for Until it. The you know, like, gone. Yeah. Like it's, Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, you know, when we talk about one hit wonders, we also have to remember what the marketplace was like, you know, when 99 red balloons, you guys remember that song? The old people. Yes. (laughs) How many times has that been covered? I mean, (laughs) right. But there was no other way to get that song. You had to go buy the record, you know, so you're making money off those covers, by the way. So not a, it's not a bad thing for your song to be covered because you get a, a license fee for your song being performed, recorded, sold, so on and so forth. Yes, it's excellent to have your song be covered. It's also very interesting that you don't need to give permission for that. That's another area of lack of consent in the music industry. Your publisher gives consent on your behalf, and if your publisher cannot be located, the license is delivered to the Library of Congress. And who's got your back more than the government, right? Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly the Library of Congress has your back, no doubt. You are strong, strong, strong. 
stronger than me with a heart much more much more lovely yeah and i reached high as high as i was Big Kid Table by Tao with the Get Down, Stay Down. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Erica Sinkovic, Z Coward, Susie Gen, 
and Kevin Erickson. Well, I want to make sure we have time for questions because we have such a great panel. I know people are probably going to want to talk to them. So if you have a question, I'm going to let you have this mic. So you guys talked a lot about using data to kind of target like your direct fans and using online data and direct stuff. How are you using data to reach and grow your artists, your market? So how are you getting the people who aren't fans, but they might be friends with someone or they might know someone who's a super fan? How are you targeting those people and how, how do you grow your market using that data? I mean, mine is obviously touring related, but I would say that I use it for a lot of packages, like I was saying, and openers and trying to find those relationships. Those numbers do translate in ways, even though they may not be, you know, the artist hasn't given consent to give all of those numbers out there and be so public about them. But it's helpful to look at that stuff in regards to building packages that equal like one plus one equals three versus like one plus one equals one which I think we all know about co-bills and packages and how that works. So it's, it's impactful to try to find the right combination in my world. Yeah, and if you're doing Facebook, if you're on a support tour, you could be boosting posts just to the, the headliners' fans and say, see them here. So that's something we're going to do, especially if like someone in the band is guesting on the record. That's huge. Yeah, like, promote I think- that. It costs money, but... Yeah. That's good money spent. Yeah. And I think the way, like, I just respect the way artists are being built in, in their communities and world right now. Like, fans want to go see their favorite band open for a bigger band just because it's, like, a cool, different vibe, you know what I mean, connection to them. And so I, as an agent, like, I totally think some of these openers are bringing audience members. They're bringing energy to our shows, and it's important to recognize that, too. And that's, you know, we're able to use their gusto in a way that's much more, you know, impactful. I think part of what you said was, how do you get people who aren't fans to be fans? (laughs) Like that is the goal, right? Like that's the whole goal. And I think the answer to that is putting yourself out there in a lot of different ways, you know? And so a label will try to help artists do all sorts of things broadly. And artists can do it now too. I mean, start a Patreon channel, start a whatever, you know, pick a service and put yourself on it so that you just might get more eyeballs in different places. I'll be the one to say, y'all stop me when I'm being crazy, but your local markets have radio stations. They have college radio stations. They have independent radio stations. And guess what? They love promotional content. They love vinyl. They love CDs. They love it all. They want to know, you know, if you know what those local shows are that you think your music fits in their wheelhouse, give that DJ a free sample of your album or your next big single or whatever it may be. Portion, I live in Portland, Oregon, so we might have better radio than the rest of the country. I don't know. (laughs) And DJs that aren't afraid to play all kinds of new stuff that someone's never heard of. We've got a lot of crate diggers in Portland, so maybe we're just lucky in that way. But even when I was living in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, going to school, we've got a kick-ass radio station that I still stream online. 88.1, man, WKNC, what up, in the house. Um, Chainsaw Metal on Fridays. What? Where where are my people? No? Okay. So just me. But... There, there is a lot of like local promotion as well that you can do within those markets that you are trying to build. And what's the harm in emailing someone a digital download or mailing in a CD, you know, to get yeah, some Yeah, I think it's also like persistence. Like, you know, it takes a thousand big breaks now when before you could play in David Letterman and sell 30,000 CDs the next week, you know, in the 90s. And now you got to do like a thousand different big breaks to make it and stay around cockroach mode for 10 years 
and you'll eventually make it. Perseverance is really key. That is such an important thing for artists to understand. Just yeah. that word, just stick around. Mm -hmm. Even if you kind of suck, you'll probably get better. Yeah. And if you just stay. Yeah. I mean, look at know, a lot of, yeah. Look like a lot I of saw actors that band that 10 years ago. They kind of sucked, but they're really good now. Yeah. They eventually got good. Just existed like a barnacle. You look at a lot of actors too that pop up in their middle age and they were doing theater for a long, long time and they're doing big Hollywood movies. So they weren't just, they didn't just decide to become an actor when they were 50, you know, so. so a revelation? Maybe like me do. living on an island? Yeah. <laughs> I got a question for you. What questions, whenever you talk about data, it seems like questions come up, right? It's like, so what questions are you trying to answer but you can't? Because either you don't have the tools to analyze the data, but you feel like the data exists, or you just don't even have the underlying data and you have like a wish list of the data you really want. For me, it's conversion to like a live audience fan. So we'll like ask, you know, sometimes we'll ask people how they found out about the show. And a lot of them are saying like on Spotify through the song kick pop up on Spotify, not through the Facebook ads we were spending money on. So. I mean, a lot of this information I don't have access to because I'm not, the, you know, for my artists, I get every piece of that information from my managers or labels. And so, you know, I think I would, I would often just like to see some of that, the, those reports and those stats and such. But I think at the same time, like I have a lot of touring history and touring data that the managers may not have their hands on. So we're trading some information, but we're all in it for the same cause. So... But yeah, I would just love to be able to have more access to that. I think there's a bigger branding and licensing piece that we miss out on, which is looking at the bigger picture of your listeners. You know, I might be listening to a death metal band one minute and then the next minute I'm listening to just some super spacey, you know, band from Mexico. And but who am I as a person and why do those two bands overlap for me as a listener? And then if you want to go one step further, how can I get a good licensing sync out of that? How can I connect with a brand? You know, you've seen brands like Converse and Vans, you know, really get behind musicians. Okay, well, who else? What's, you know, what's this, what's this water brand right here? Proud Source. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, how can they connect and I can make a pitch to them to say, hey, you should totally, you know, partially sponsor my tour. Here's how we align and how our audiences align and really make that sell to the brand. And who knows, maybe you'll at least get some free water to take on your tour. If not, like pay for some, like what's the next step up from McDonald's? Is there like a, like a Burgerville of the nation? There's Taco Bell, feed the beat. <laughs> That's a real thing. <laughs> I think that's a really awesome question because it sort of speaks to a lot of what happened in the industry, which is we didn't know that we wanted data and then they gave us a bunch of data and now we're like, oh, how do we figure out what to do with this data? Because like I started out by saying, those services have decided what data to give us, right? I keep coming back to that because I'm like, do I want to know if they're male or female? or non-gender binary? Do I want to know that? Do I want to know where they live? Do I want to know how old they are? I mean, I looked this morning at Elliot Smith's Spotify Artist Insights page, and in the last 28 days, the largest percentage of age range that has been listening to Elliot Smith is 18 to 22. In one billion years, I would never guess that. And I don't think those people are buying the records. I think it's the old folks that are buying the records. I could be wrong, but guess what? I don't have data on that. <laughs> it is hard to know like what data is actionable. And I think like the harsh truth is like most data isn't actionable for most artists and especially artists who don't have like the, a lot of resources and don't have folks like you guys who are, who are 
like really adept at navigating that minefield of like who are able to interpret and make choices and make creative choices on their behalf based on that data. For people who are like at this entry level stage of their career, it can the most important data point again is just like get a bunch of email addresses from your listeners from the people who come to your shows. Other kinds of like DIY approaches like just make sure that you're capturing the touring numbers. So, you know, your your booking agent, if you have one, is probably grabbing that data too, but you should make sure that you're holding on to it for yourself. So you can go back to the market and say and know if somebody's like under underselling what you can actually do in that market. I think there's a big theme in having a mix of data available, whether it's ticket sales, album sales, social media, digital formats. <laughs> Of consumption. But whose role is it to like take all that data and like spit it back out to the teams? Are we all just doing it every day? I think everyone Little is doing it. <laughs> Some of us are avoiding it. Yeah, we're like. Some of us are just no. not looking at it at all. I, I've been an intern in my life, and I did a lot of it, and I am no longer an intern. And guess what? I still do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we're out of time. So thank you very much to my panel. And thanks for being with us on The Future of What? Thanks, Portia. Thanks Thanks for having us. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Horse Feathers, Lithics, Tao with a Get Down, Stay Down, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash thefutureofwhat and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rock Stars. See you next week. <laughs>